Go ahead and open your Bibles tonight to Genesis 26. I did just hear back from John. They don't know what caused the fire at the New River Gorge, uh, but it, it seems to be on both sides of the river. So do, uh, as I said, do pray for that area. Genesis 26, looking at verses 1 through 16, uh, I've entitled the outline, Along Came Another Grievous Famine. Uh, and this is going to seem very familiar, so bear with me as I read through the text itself. <clears throat> and we will talk about uh, why it should seem familiar. Genesis 26, verses 1 through 16. And there was a famine in the land, beside the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went unto Abimelech, king of the Philistines, unto Gerar. And the Lord appeared unto him and said, Go not down into Egypt, dwell in the land which I shall tell thee of. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with thee, and will bless thee. For unto thee and unto thy seed I will give all these countries. And I will perform the oath which I swear unto Abraham thy father. And I will make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven. And will give unto thy seed all these countries. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because, the, because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And Isaac dwelt in Gerar. And the men of the place asked him of his wife, and he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say, She is my wife, lest, said he, the men of the place should kill me for Rebekah, because she was fair to look upon. And it came to pass, when he had been there a long time, that Abimelech, now I should point out here, this is the same title as the one that Abraham dealt with. It is not the same individual that Abraham dealt with. He's the king of the Philistines, looked out a window and saw, and behold, Isaac was sporting. And this word that's used for sporting here, uh, according to Strong's, also means to laugh or to mock or to play. And he's sporting with Rebekah, his wife. And we'll talk a little more about what that is in just a moment. And Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, of a surety, she is thy wife. And how saidest thou, she is my sister? And Isaac said unto him, Because I said, lest I die for her. Uh, that's probably what every wife wants to hear. And Abimelech said, What is this What is this thou hast done unto us? One of the people might have lean. Uh, and lean here is um, by Strong's defined as to be lain with sexually. They might, ha or they might lightly have lean with thy wife, and thou shouldest have brought guiltiness. And again, quoting Strong's, this, this word itself is translated trespass offering, 34 times, trespass eight times, also trans translated as offering for sin or sin or guiltiness. Thou shouldest have brought guiltiness upon us. And Abimelech charged all his people, saying, He that toucheth this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Then Isaac sowed in that land and received in the same year an hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. And the man waxed great and went forward and grew until he became very great. For he had possession of flocks, and possession of herds, and great store of servants. And the Philistines envied him. For all the wells which his father's servants had digged in the days of Abraham his father, the Philistines had stopped them and filled them with earth. And Abimelech said unto Isaac, Go from us, for thou art much mightier than we. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we approach this text, we ask, Father, that you would remove the concerns of the election, the concerns of this world from our hearts and minds, Lord, that we would focus upon our only great hope, that being you. We ask, Father, that if it be your will, that you'd bless us here tonight. 
Bless with salvation, bless with revival, bless with clarity. Whatever you see fit, Father, we trust in your will for us, your desire for us, and your leadership of us. We ask these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. The points that I have for tonight, and this is really going to be split over a couple of messages. Uh, I thought about going a little bit longer, but knew we had our business meeting tonight. So I have the first three points tonight. He faced his father's temptations. He repeated his father's sin, and he knew some of his father's blessings. Uh, and then we'll see the latter two points, uh, Lord willing, next Wednesday. First, he faced his father's temptations, and we really see the, the bulk of this in the first five verses. Based on the text, it seems that uh, this was likely the first famine of this magnitude over the last hundred years, which is why it's not very likely that this Abimelech is the same reigning Abimelech that Abraham would have already been dealing with back in the day. It also seems that it was so bad that Isaac felt he only had two options. How devastating when a Christian feels that he has only two options. Let me be more specific. How devastating when a Christian feels like he has options. You're to follow the Lord. That's your option. That's the directive of God himself. This is the reason the Holy Spirit was sent unto the New Testament believer, to be a comforter, to utter unto us direction in which we should go, and we should go that way. We might read this and say, well, he had a couple of options. They were both lousy, but he had a couple of options. There's only one option, be faithful unto God. The two options he came up with was Egypt and Gerar. And Egypt seems to be what he was most likely leaning towards before the Lord intervened and said, do not go there. Do not go there. should sound familiar. If you'll flip back a few pages to Genesis 12, we read of this famine that's quoted in the very first verse of Genesis 26, and we're just going to read a few verses. We've already taught through this. Uh, if you missed it, it's certainly on Podbean. Uh, the outlines are around here as well. But Genesis 12, verses 10 through 13 says, And there was a famine in the land, and Abram, <clears throat> before the H, went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. And it came to pass, when he was come near to enter into Egypt, that he said unto Sarai his wife, Behold now, I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. Therefore it shall come to pass, when the Egyptians shall see thee, that they shall say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will save thee alive. Say, I pray thee, thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of thee. Now, on your way back to Genesis 26, stop at Genesis 20, and we'll read the first five verses there. Because again, this should sound pretty familiar. Genesis 20, verses 1 through 5, And Abraham, now with the H, sojourned, or, or, or journeyed rather, and Abraham journeyed from thence toward the south country, and dwelt near Kadesh and Shur, and sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said to of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. Now remember, for Abraham, this was still a truth. She was his sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, thou art but a dead man, for the woman which thou hast taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, wilt thou slay also a righteous nation? Said he not unto me, she is my sister? And she, even she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocency of my hands have I done this. Isaac started toward Egypt in our text, but God in his grace interrupted the trip and stopped him. This should be our prayer, that the Lord would close doors we shouldn't go into. 
that he would remove us from situations of temptation that we aren't strong enough to face on our own. And if we're meant to face it, that he would give us strength and focus and fortitude that though we don't see the armies, we recognize and remember that the armies of God far outnumber the armies of this world, the armies of our flesh, the temptation and the weaknesses that we have, that we would find strength in him. We see here that, uh, much like we saw back before the flood, human nature does not improve from generation to generation. Isaac dwelt at Gerar, which is uh, on, on a borderline, really, where he's staying here. Genesis 10.19, we see that description. Uh, Genesis 10.19 says, And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon, as thou comest to Gerar, unto Gaza, as thou goest unto Sodom and Gomorrah, and Adma and Zeboim, even unto uh, Laisha. So we have an idea where it was, and we spent a lot of time with the maps when we were going through all this as well the first time. But likewise, we have borderline Christians today. Isaac had material blessings there, but not the spiritual blessings that God gave him later when he left that place. <clears throat> what blessings await the borderline Christian, or maybe the part-time Christian, for a season, who, who for a season has been permitted to dip in and out of the Lord's work for him? I was uh, approached by Julius again about going to the Philippines over the last week, and it finally dawned on me that the Lord's been too good to me for me to refuse him. If it's the Lord telling me to go, I probably better start figuring out how I'm going to do it. Uh, and I'm not saying that because I've got anything planned. I don't have a passport. I mean, I can postpone this for a long time, I suppose, if I wanted to. And knowing my flesh, I probably will. But this is just it, right? As borderline Christians or part-time Christians, and I'm using myself as an example, if I'm unfaithful to what God has told me to do in its fullest desire of God, then I'm borderline as well. I'm not where I ought to be. I'm not being faithful unto him. What blessings might await for me to be faithful unto him? What blessings have been promised unto me to be as faithful to him as I should be? We're not called to play and win at the world's games. We're called to be like Christ. Think of, think of, and I'll use the term loosely, but think of the reputation that Christ had during his ministry. He turned the tables in the temple. He made enemies of these religious zealots, the scribes who, who were supposedly interpreting the law but were writing it during his ministry. They hated him. They threatened him. We're, we're getting to the point in our Sunday afternoon study now where we're, we're seeing him teach the church what it is he's come to do. We're going to see, Lord willing, the, the transfiguration on Sunday afternoon, which I'm extremely excited to get to preach. But he didn't have a reputation of getting along with the world. He didn't have a reputation of breaking their laws, but it was God's law first and foremost, and it was God's will first and foremost, and it was the work that he was sent to do that was priority for him that's how it should be for us we call ourselves christian we consider ourselves to be christ-like we ought to be he was everywhere he was supposed to be at all times he was way more perfect he was perfect than we will ever get close to being but we should strive for such things we see here of isaac that he repeated his father's sin in verses 6 through 16 this <clears throat> what we refer to with abraham this half lie that they were brother and sister, was adopted by Isaac and Rebekah with the same sad results. A loss of blessing, a loss of testimony, and a public rebuke by the heathen king. I don't know if we really think of these three things 
and meditate on it. I don't know which one's really worse. When we, we saw the first famine that chased Abraham and, or Abram and Sarai rather into Egypt, we talked about how devastating it was that Abraham lost his testimony with, with the Egyptians, with the leadership of that nation. Instead of this being a godly man, his reputation was that of, a, to be honest, a coward and a liar. Think again of the situation with Abimelech for Abraham. God in the, in the vision, God had to reveal unto Abimelech that Abraham was a prophet of God's. This wasn't what Abraham led with. Abraham led with a lie. And this is uh, famous this time of year. Let, let's soften them up with a lie. Let's cushion the truth with a lie. You know what happens when you do that? You're a liar. When we cushion the truth of God's word, we are a liar. Beware of that. This is what they had experienced as a result, a loss of blessing, a loss of testimony, and a public rebuking by the heathen king. Is there anything more shameful than somebody asking you if you're a Christian when you're doing something you shouldn't be doing? And you could fill in the blanks. There's a number of things that we catch ourselves doing that we shouldn't. Uh, way better for us to catch ourselves and repent than to be caught by the world and lectured, is it not? Consider the concern for sin that Abimelech expresses here compared to Isaac. Let's look at the text again there in Genesis 26 in those first 16 verses. Uh, Abimelech said, what is this thou hast done unto us? One of the people might have lean with thy wife, and thou shouldest have brought guiltiness upon us. Abimelech seems sincerely concerned about what Isaac had done unto them, and he already is making the connection that this is sin. This is shameful. Again, Strong defines that word as trespass offering. 34 times it's translated as trespass offering and 8 times as trespass. In other words, it's unacceptable before God. And you know him, Isaac. You know him. Your father was a friend of God's, a prophet of God's. And you come in here, like your daddy did 100 years earlier, and bring shame and guilt and sin upon my people? I think of Jonah again. Oh, sleeper. The shame. Isaac should know. Isaac should live better. I often wonder if this event didn't occur a second time here so that we could see the lasting effects of Abraham's experience in Gerar. This is a people that now had an idea of what sin was. Let's not take lightly that this other Abimelech, the previous Abimelech, had a vision given to him from God. I'm trying to avoid the dream interpreting thing, but I know Steve made a reference this past weekend. I don't know what that dream means either. But um, and there was somebody else this weekend and, and at Beauty Mountain that made a reference too. That um, It was actually Mike Sisson that we were talking about it. But this was a real experience that Abimelech had. A real experience, and we know this because the Bible records him having conversations awake about it with Sarah. It happened. God revealed unto me that you're supposed to be holy for he's holy, is essentially what Abimelech says. How would you feel if some of your most heathenistic contacts on this planet called you up and said, aren't you supposed to be holy? 
because your God is holy? Uh, well, uh, yeah, that's right. We have the scripture to illustrate this for us in a much uh, less shameful and public way. Do we read it? Do we adhere to it? Are we bearing fruit, as the brother said this past weekend? The entire nation. Listen to what uh, Abimelech says. He charged all his people, saying, He that toucheth this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Listen to what uh, the vision said. Back in Genesis 20, the vision that the Lord gave unto uh, Abimelech. Um, let me jump to it here. But Abimelech had not come unto her, and the Lord, or I skipped right over it. I'm just going to read the whole thing. Genesis 20, verses 1 through 5. And Abraham journeyed from thence toward the south country and dwelled between Kadesh and Shur and sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of, his, of Sarah, his wife, she's my sister, Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said unto him, Behold, thou art a dead man for the woman which thou hast taken, for she is a man's wife. So what's at stake here when we sin, when we live like we shouldn't? We see a lasting effect by this event and this same nation, the same territory, happening again. They're a different nation now. They, they were threatened with extinction by the very God that created them. They were threatened to, in a sense, be a type of holy, to abstain from this appearance of evil or die. That's a pretty big deal. So why did Abraham's son go and do the same lie again why do we as dogs return into our own vomit why do we return unto the same sinful tactics and the same sinful natures and the same sinful uh, pleasures and experiences over and over and over again when we know it to be wrong it's better that sin be cut off listen to how Abimelech handles it he is our great example here Abimelech charged all his people, saying, He that touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. They took sin seriously, did they not? It was a big deal. Don't touch this man, don't touch this woman, or I, Abimelech, your leader, will see that you are put to death. What do we do with sin now? Oh, I'm sure it's just an accident. I'm sure they didn't mean it. Little Johnny was just out of line. We'll talk to him. We'll encourage him. We'll set a better example for him. Johnny becomes a borderline Christian at best, beloved. He has no fear of the Lord. He certainly has no fear of you. And he's going to live how he wants to live. And Lord help him, he may end up being one of those Baptists, waving once saved, always saved, and living how he wants to live. We've said before the first part of that phrase has to be true for the last part of it to be true. And if we're indeed saved, we have such a fear of the Lord that we will be led to repent and we will be corrected by uh, our relationship with him. But what an interesting thing here that Abimelech is our greater example. Is it the end of everything when the world outholies us, at least in word? Is it the end of everything? Is it the end? Should we even show our faces again if the world outholies us, at least in word? 
This is where we repent and cry, Abba, Father. This is where we consider the prodigal son. This is where we consider Simon Peter, who over and over and over again uh, jumped to saying what was on his mind in his wicked heart before giving any thought. It's not the end of everything. It's not the end of your ministry. It's not the end of your requirement to witness. You've not been used up and spoiled. You are merely to repent. Restore me, Father. I have misspoke, misstepped, misspent, and I require once again your mercy to proceed unto the throne. It's, a, it's described in the New Testament as a race. And if you fall in a, in a race, you get up and you keep going. And this is, this is life. This is our challenge that we're dealing with now, is it not? That we keep going. Whatever it might be, the election results, which might take another two years to settle, who knows? I don't know that we settled 2020's election results, to be honest with you. Uh, your, your financial situation, um, maybe, maybe you've got a spouse that stepped out and you're in a situation where you, you've, you're filled with so much shame you don't know how to show your face you don't know how to go out in the open again. Trust in God. Trust in God and repent. There is a great importance for, of trials for God's elect. They'll be used. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6-9. through 9. He writes, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen ye love, in whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. What uh, he writes of here is trial. What he writes of here is tough times experiences you probably wouldn't prefer to go through. How valuable is that to the Christian? Peter says it's much more precious than of gold. He says gold will reach its perishing point before you will lose the value of the trials you go through concerning your faith. Think of what Joseph went through. <laughs> and he still stood on two feet and said, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. It's another verse just like John 16, 33, where I imagine the speaker has a, a bit of a smile on his face. Joseph had gone through an awful lot. His own, I mean, his life begins with his own brethren turning on him. And I don't want to jump ahead. It, it's coming in this exact study. But uh, turning on him, throwing him in a pit out of jealousy, in a fit of rage. He's sold off. He's imprisoned. He's, uh, he, he really, for all intents and purposes, he's, he's uh, at least an attempt of molestation of him by Potiphar's wife. He's forsaken. He's forgotten. And he's elevated and used, praise God, because his purpose wasn't to be loved by his siblings. His purpose wasn't to make love to Potiphar's wife. His purpose wasn't to break out of jail. His purpose was to be used by and honor God. And that's our purpose. You're going to be cheated. You're going to be misused. You're going to be lied to. People are going to talk badly about you and your reputation. People are going to call you a Calvinist, if you're doing it right. A hyper-Calvinist, if they don't like what you have to say. They're going to take your money. 
They'll burn your house to the ground if given an opportunity. They'll come knocking on the door seeking to molest your house guests. These are all scriptural examples. It will happen because this is not our home. We are sojourners here. We are pilgrims here. We don't belong here. We should have a longing to go home. We should have a longing for others to go with us, lest they perish in eternal hellfire and flame. Gold will not travel from this world with us, but the resulting refining that comes from our trials, that is carried with the saints for all time. Imagine how many today put their faith in gold. And yet the scripture writes of it perishing before the results of these very trials on our faith. How precious those tough times are. How precious are your prayers for Brother Ray, for the other uh, names that we mentioned on our prayer request list. Uh, one that I forgot to mention, James Hopkins. He's a member of uh, Brother Andy Proctor's church. He's listening to our sermons there in North Carolina. Got to, just recently, he's the one I mentioned a couple weeks ago, that got to the fasting messages and the challenges that we had out of the cupbearer message. And he's going through that for the, for the month of November. And you pray for him because the devil's all over him already, seven days in. And he told me today, I don't, I don't know what else I can do to strengthen my testimony, to be prepared for what's ahead. It'd be good for us to have those questions on our hearts because there's something ahead. And I think we feel it. I think we know it. There's a darkness looming. There's a, a tension resting upon our necks and our shoulders, and that is the ever-wicked estate of this world. It is vexing our souls because we're not in the Word of God as we should be, because we're not loving on one another as we should be. We're not praying for one another as we should be, and most importantly, because we're not turning to God and repenting as we should be. One day we will be made perfect. And until that time, we are to grow closer and closer to God for the work that is at hand. Listen to Matthew 6, verses 24 through 34. The Lord Jesus speaking, he says, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you by taking thought can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin, and yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore, the point of the message, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things, but seek ye first the kingdom of God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. The entire point of what he's saying here is to take no thought of those things before taking thought of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Have you considered the kingdom of God today? 
Have you considered that you won't see it lest you be born again, according to Jesus in John 3, as he's meeting at night with Nicodemus? Have you considered the kingdom of God, that it's at hand? And both John the Baptist and Jesus Christ commanded for us to repent because it is at hand? Have you considered your eternal destiny? Will you know the kingdom of God? Then what manner of reputation ought ye to have? What manner of godly conversation ought ye to partake in? In the very hour of your wicked speech, he could come. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought of, for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. And the final point we have out of this text tonight is he knew, Isaac knew, some of his father's blessings uh, at the hand of God, of course. It says here, Then Isaac sowed in that land and received in the same year an hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. And the man waxed great and went forward and grew until he became very great, for he had possession of flocks and possession of herds and a great store of servants, and the Philistines envied him. For all the wells which his father's servants had digged in the days of Abraham his father, the Philistines had stopped them and filled them with earth. And Abimelech said unto Isaac, Go from us, for thou art much mightier than we. I find it interesting, and, and, and it's a good place for us to be reminded, that Jacob is very likely the writer here, not Isaac. Isaac's been our, our narrator, our writer, uh, for a good portion, but we just lost him as our writer in the, in the previous chapter, if you recall. I think Genesis 25, 19 was where we said that it changed. So here we have Jacob writing, and Jacob was not loved by his father as well as Esau was, as we saw in our last lesson. And here he is speaking of his father, and, and, and he uses the phrase, and the man waxed great and went forward. And it's almost he almost uses this phrase in such a way that this is a, a stranger unto him. I mean, he, he uses Isaac's name throughout this whole portion of text, but here he, he speaks of him in a such a way that the man waxed great and went forward and grew until he became very great. And it's really a transition in the character of Isaac too, because Isaac's mentioned over and over again here as a deceitful man in the previous chapter, as well as up until this point in our text. And I don't say that to say he's always a deceitful man and never redeemed. I, and you understand it's in this moment that we he's mentioned a little differently. He's one that lied to Abimelech. And suddenly this man waxed great and went forward and grew into it, became very great. Suddenly toward the end of this, he's envied by the Philistines. That's not the case earlier. Earlier, the Philistines had to, give, had to receive commandment from Abimelech to abstain from touching him and his wife. Essentially saying, he's unclean. You can't trust him. No matter what he does, no matter how he tempts you, don't touch him and don't touch his wife. That's how Abimelech is addressing the situation. But now he's a man who's waxed great and went forward, received blessings of the Lord. Do you see the change? When the Lord blesses, there's a change in man. And Jacob addresses it here subtly in the writing that there's something different here now. This is the very first that we read of Isaac and uh, his practice of, of agriculture. Verse 12 actually has the first mention of seed sowing in the Bible itself, uh, which Livy should find fascinating if she's been listening because she's been growing arugula and 
other green things that she made me eat this week. I can't remember what the other ones are, but arugula was an interesting one. I don't know if I've ever tasted that. But here we see the first mention of, uh, of seed sowing in the Bible itself, and we see Isaac to be the, the, the one practicing agriculture. Seed sowing, as we've talked before in the New Testament, commonly pictures witnessing, which again is the transition, because Isaac was not seed sowing when he first got over here to Gerar. When he was first dealing with Abimelech, uh, he was lying. He was putting forth a sin offering, a trespass, something unfit as an offering before God. But suddenly, as, as the man changes, as there's a tradition tra transition here, we see seed sowing. It's first mentioned in the New Testament in the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, 23 that we talked about uh, months ago in our Sunday afternoon study. His success and subsequent vowed protection from Abimelech's declaration that we just read eventually led to bitterness and retaliation from the Philistines. <laughs> Think of how they lash out here as they fill in his father's wells, as they, as they seek to basically cut off uh, his prosperity. Not necessarily his wealth, but his prosperity. They don't want him to do well. I don't know if anybody in here has ever gardened. You need water to do that. I'm not good at it, but I've heard you need water to see things grow. But if the wells are being filled back in with dirt, that's going to make things a little more complicated. Consider how earlier, how the earlier Abimelech responded to Abraham as this tribe grew in strength. Going back again to Genesis 21, verses 22 through 32, we read, And it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and, and Phicol, the chief captain of his host, spake unto Abraham, saying, God is with thee in all that thou doest. Now therefore swear unto me, hereby God, that thou wilt not deal falsely with me, nor with my son, nor with my son's son. Now, when we talked about this when we were going through um, Genesis 21, that he brought the chief host of his armies. It could have been uh, implied that they were ready to fight if they needed to, but Abimelech is having a conversation with Abraham after years of, of dealing with one another in hopes that Abraham's going to deal honestly with him, that fighting isn't going to have to, uh, to be how we solve the problem here. And we don't read here where this Abimelech's running around filling in Abraham's wells. Now, as we continue to read, we see, but according to the kindness that I have done unto thee, Abimelech says, thou shalt do unto me, and to the land wherein thou hast sojourned. To straighten things out, Abraham then addresses the concern he has over wells then. Abraham reproved Abimelech because of a well of water which Abimelech's servants had violently taken away. And Abimelech said, I would not that uh, who hath done this thing, neither didst thou tell me, neither yet heard I of it, but today. And Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them unto Abimelech, and both of them made a covenant. And Abraham set uh, seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. And Abimelech said unto Abraham, What mean these seven ewe lambs which thou hast set by themselves? And he said, For these seven ewe lambs shalt thou take of my hand, that they may be a witness unto me that I have digged this well. Wherefore we call that place uh, wherefore he called that place Beersheba, because there they swear both of them. Thus they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech rose up and Phicol, the chief captain of his host, and they returned unto the land of the Philistines. No fighting occurred. No wells were filled in. Uh, concerns were addressed. A covenant was made. And this is a very different dealing than what Isaac's getting from the other Abimelech. So we, uh, we can close this portion of Genesis 26 knowing that the Philistines hadn't completely changed. They aren't, they aren't the promised seed all of a sudden. Uh, there was an everlasting effect of the experience they had with Abraham the first time around. But then there's also a bitterness that this was land that they felt they could have prospered from, that suddenly Isaac has come in and prospered from. And, and we've got a picture there too 
of what we started to see in Genesis 25 of election and, and, and how that's handled even in 2022 by folks who don't agree with it or folks who aren't blessed by it, uh, of bitterness that one would have and another would not. And we see this kind of driven all the way through. Abimelech requested fair dealings then. The one Isaac faced sought removal. Genesis 26, 16, and Abimelech said unto Isaac, Go from us, for thou art much mightier than we. Now, the one thing I wanted to close with is that we do see in the opening of Genesis 26, and we're going to come back to it later, uh, but before we pass by it, we see that God is uh, restating his promise to Isaac as part of the Abrahamic or Abrahamic, I don't, I don't say it right, covenant. And it's very significant that he's restating it. It's very significant that he's, in a way, renewing it, uh, but mostly confirming that it rests upon Isaac. God does not change. What he said he would do with the seed of Abraham through Isaac and eventually Jacob, as we talked last time, must come to pass as much for the Adam, uh, uh, Adam as for the elect under this day, as as much for the first Adam, the fallen Adam, as us today who have unfortunately benefited from the depravity that has come from that fall. It's a wonderful thing to read where these promises are renewed and reminded to future generations. If we're here today and we're born again, we have the same promises as our Baptist forefathers, the same ground that they tread, the same ground that they stood, the same truth that they fought for. We have been charged to do the very same. How are we doing? Just to throw another question out there, at today's Christian and perilous times, how are we doing? If our forefathers marched into the room right now, would we confidently stand and say we have carried the torch, that we look to the same banner, that we fight the same battles, that we have not lost ground? I wonder. I wonder. May the Lord be merciful unto 